Every week, we open up the scriptures. Hey, why do we do this? We open up the Bible. Why do we do this? It's because there it testifies to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, And so we go there to learn, to learn about him, to learn from him. Our sermon text this week is Esther chapters 9 and 10. It's 9, 17 through 10, 3. Uh, But before I read the text, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, you uh, tell us that in this time, uh, this is more than just words on a page, but yet you are feeding your sheep through your word. And so, Lord, would you posture our hearts into a place where we would be humble enough to receive it? Lord, I know that in uh, a time like this that there are many people in here there are, that need encouragement. And so would you give encouragement through the word? Lord, I know there are many people in here who there needs to be conviction in their soul. And so, Lord, would you bring conviction? Uh, Father, we trust you, and we pray that you would do work through this word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, hear the word of the Lord from Esther nine seventeen through 10, 3. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adair. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, also the 15th day of the same, of the same year by year. And as, <clears throat> as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies... And as the month they, that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted that they, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came to before the king, he gave orders in the writing that his evil plan that had been devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because all that was written in this, in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at, that, and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city that these days of Purim should never should never fall into dis- disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. 
Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai, the Jews gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was, reco- it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai the <clears throat> to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. And first, he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Welcome, everyone. Good morning to you. Good morning to everyone joining us online. Um, It's wonderful to be with you on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. Am I too loud right now? I feel like I'm really loud. Am I good? Okay, great. (laughs) Um, Today we are concluding, um, sweetly and yet sadly, we are today we are concluding our seven-week series through the book of Esther. And so over these last seven weeks, we have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They are living at the mercy of a foreign government, the Persian Empire, as we've said. And God has called his people in this time to submit and honor and serve and pray for the empire to seek its welfare. But, as we've said every week, our main characters in this story have had to learn how to do that faithfully. They've had to learn to trust God and to act with courage and faith, even when faced with deep darkness, even when faced with the annihilation of their people, and even when God himself was seemingly absent. A number of weeks ago, back in chapter 3, King Ahasuerus promoted a man named Haman above all the other officials in the kingdom, and the king commanded everyone to bow down and pay homage to Haman And everyone did so. You remember? Everyone that is except for Mordecai the Jew. And for a variety of reasons which we've already discussed, Mordecai refused to acknowledge the authority of Haman. Let's take a look at that verse in chapter 3, verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. They cast purr, that is, they they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So in short, just to review, Haman gets upset that one Jew is disrespecting him. And so he resolves to annihilate every Jew in the empire. And he cast purr to determine when this genocide would take place, 
Remember that. Every month they were casting lots. Should it be this month? Should it be this month? Every month they did that. And so essentially Haman is rolling the dice every month to determine when are we going to annihilate the Jews. Now fast forward from chapter 3 to our text today, chapter 9. And at this point in the story, King Ahasuerus has executed Haman for his treachery. And every other enemy of the Jewish people throughout the entire empire has been defeated. The Jewish people are delivered and Represented by Esther and Mordecai, the Jewish people have ascended. They've ascended to a place of authority within the Persian government. The queen of Persia and the king's second in command are both Jews. In fact, if we could jump, if we could jump ahead briefly, this is basically the purpose and message of Esther. Of chapter 10, which... Uh, which is only three verses, we see that Mordecai is a new Joseph. Joseph was second in command to the Egyptian Pharaoh. He instituted a kingdom-wide tax to preserve the welfare of the kingdom, and he was loved by all of his brothers. We see each of those same elements here in Esther chapter 10, but in reference to Mordecai. Mordecai is a new Joseph. And now back to chapter 9. We, we see that the light has overcome the darkness. The Jews have defeated their enemies. And, and, that's, and all that's left now to institute is a feast. A feast to commemorate this great moment in the history of Israel. As we said before we began this study, the book of Esther tells the origin story of a Jewish feast called Purim. And as we've seen, the book of Esther is itself full of feasts. And today we'll see what we can learn from the Feast of Purim. Chapter 9, verse 20, reads like this. Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them, that they should make these days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So, so all throughout the empire, the Jews inaugurate an annual two-day feast. Their sorrow has turned to gladness. Their mourning has turned to holiday. And Mordecai orders that they commemorate this deliverance by sharing meals and caring for the poor. This was a feast marked by joy and hospitality and care for the poor. So why is the feast called Purim? Because Right here in verse 24, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. Again, Haman cast poor. He cast lots to determine when to annihilate the Jews. And by the grace of God, the genocide was delayed 11 months. And we see here in chapter 9 that the Jews had come to attribute that delay to the sovereign work and hand of God 
Haman cast that poor every month, but the date was fixed by God. And ultimately, this provided the time necessary for Haman's plot to backfire. Over the past few weeks, we've seen the sovereign hand of God at work all throughout the story of Esther. Coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. The name of God is never mentioned. He never speaks. But it's clear that he is nonetheless present and actively involved. But specifically, the Jewish people came to consider Haman's casting of the poor to be a symbol of God's providential intervention. A symbol of his invisible hand working in the background. Ultimately, it was God who delivered his people. Absent though he seemed. In verse 26, therefore they called these days Purim after the term Pur. They called the feast Purim so as to acknowledge the sovereign hand of God in reversing their fortunes, in accomplishing their deliverance, in defeating their enemies. Their situation had appeared hopeless. But even in the darkness, God was was guiding the narrative, caring for his people, protecting them, fighting their battles, prospering them, refining them. It's, it's very common for us as Christians to talk about how the Passover feast or the Feast of Tabernacles fulfill their or find their fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. But in light of what we're learning in Esther, I do think it's important to ask, what about Purim? What can we learn about the Lord's Supper from and in light, in light of the Feast of Purim? After all, Purim is said to be a perpetual feast for the people of God. So if Purim has not in some way been fulfilled or substantiated by the Lord's Supper, then perhaps we should still be observing it. Let's see what we can learn from it. Let's let's consider firstly what was originally being celebrated. In Esther chapter 9, God's enemies have been defeated. God's people have been delivered. A new ruler has ascended to a place of supreme authority. A bride has been chosen to rule and reign alongside the king, and the people are instructed to hold a perpetual feast of gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and care for the poor. And of course, we could say all of those same things about the Lord's Supper. Jesus has defeated the enemies of God. On the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. God's people have been delivered. Jesus has ascended to a place of supreme authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of kings. And his bride, us, the church, has been chosen to rule and reign alongside him. And Jesus has instructed us to hold a perpetual feast of gladness and hospitality and remembrance and care for the poor. The overlap is striking isn't it? There are numerous similarities between the context within, within which Purim was instituted and the context within which the Lord's Supper was instituted. And it's not a stretch to conclude that the Lord's Supper ought to be characterized by the same things. 
Like Purim, the Lord's Supper should be accompanied by gladness and hospitality and remembrance and care for the poor. Now, over the centuries, the Jewish people have added a number of different customs to their observance of Purim. If you were to visit a synagogue during the Feast of Purim, it would be a loud, lively, and joy-filled experience. The scroll of Esther is read straight through. So if you think our readings of Scripture during this series are long, please go to a synagogue. You will be blown away by how much Scripture is read. But the congregation is buzzing. There are cheers and laughter whenever Esther and Mordecai are mentioned. There are boos and foot stomping whenever Haman is mentioned. In fact, some people go so far as to write Haman on the bottom of their shoes so that when they stamp their feet, they're stamping out God's enemies. It goes so far as to say that they're crushing the heads of serpents. Children dress up as characters in the story and they put on a play. The people greet one another by delivering food to each other and special attention is given to feeding the poor and the hungry. This is consistent with the Bible's understanding of a true feast. It's not, it's not a lavish opportunity for the wealthy to stuff their faces. It's a lavish opportunity to practice hospitality and to care for the poor. In addition, there's a tradition of what's referred to as proclaiming the miracle. The congregation actively participates in the reading of the story. They have portions that they recite in unison. Why? Because it's not enough to passively listen and quietly watch as the book of Esther is read because proper remembering, true remembering, requires that we speak and that we actively engage with the story. We, get, we need to get our whole selves involved, not just our minds and our eyes, but our entire bodies. It's like the Apostle Paul saying that as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. Proper remembering requires a participatory liturgy so, Jen, that's why we do what we do every Sunday and the way that we do it. God speaks and we speak back. We trade peace with one another. We speak peace to one another and we receive peace from one another. We kneel to confess. We stand to sing in acclamation and thanksgiving. Our whole bodies are involved. It's not a passive reading, it's not a silent ritual. So for the Jewish community, the Feast of Purim is an elaborate participatory ritual and many of the customs are, are truly, they're out of the ordinary. But really, that, that is the whole point. <laughs> we have a lot to learn from the Jewish community concerning how to best remember God's past faithfulness and how best to maintain our distinctiveness as a minority community. Because for human beings and human communities, true remembering is not just a cognitive exercise. Remembering doesn't just take place in our heads. True remembering is not accomplished only by having a moment of silence. It, it requires more than just our minds. I, I think that's 
actually a problem that the Enlightenment brought us, that our minds are the most important frontier. They're not. They're not the only frontier. Truly to remember fully, we perform specific actions and we speak specific words. Our bodies must be involved, not just our minds. Just to give you a few examples that you would, that we'd be for really familiar with. True remembering is placing a tree in your living room and covering it with lights and ornaments and lighting candles and singing carols and exchanging gifts and sharing meals. It's how we remember the incarnation. True remembering is blocking off your street, wearing red, white, and blue, listening to patriotic music, grilling burgers and hot dogs and shooting off fireworks. True remembering is taking your seat in this sanctuary, doing this together. We do the liturgy together. But you take your seat. We, we sing songs together. We pray prayers together. We kneel for confession together. We lift our hands. We greet each other. We listen to readings and teachings. We share the bread and the cup. This is true remembering. When a Jewish community celebrates the Feast of Purim, it's natural for children and visitors to ask for an explanation for all of these very strange customs. It's expected that they will ask. And the book of Esther offers the explanation. The same is true of our children, of our visitors, of people who don't know the Lord coming to join us on this day. Christian worship should not be anything, be like anything else that we experience during the week. Christian worship is supposed to be a bit strange. It's supposed to elicit questions. What we do here, the manner in which we do it, it ought to demand an explanation. James K.A. Smith, um, an author, um, believer, and he says it this way. Worship should be an occasion of cross-cultural hospitality. Consider an analogy. When I travel to France, I hope to be made to feel welcome. However, I don't expect my French hosts to become Americans in order to make me feel at home. I don't expect them to start speaking English, ordering pizza, talking about the New York Yankees, and so on. Indeed, if I wanted that, I, I would have just stayed home. Indeed, what I'm hoping for is to be welcomed into their unique French culture that's why I've come to France in the first place. And I know that this will take some work on my part. I'm, I'm expecting things to be different. Indeed, I'm looking for just this difference. So also, I think, with hospitable worship, seekers are looking for something our culture can't provide. Many don't want a religious version of what they can already get at the mall. They are searching for the mysterious practices of the ancient gospel. And when our children ask, when our visitors ask, we have the story of all stories to share with them. If you read in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, God explicitly says, your children are going to ask, why, why do we do this? Why do we take the cup and the bread? Why do we baptize? Why do we sing? Why? 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the explanation for everything that we do as a Christian community. We believe our God has entered into this world as a newborn human, that he stepped into our darkness in order to, to teach us how to live, in order to proclaim the coming of his kingdom of peace and righteousness, and in order to bear the consequences of our sin and rebellion. He was willing to offer his body and pour out his blood for our redemption and for the salvation of the whole world. As we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, we are remembering and proclaiming the miracle of his coming and his second coming. Until he comes again, he has instructed us to hold this perpetual feast of gladness and hospitality and remembrance and care for the poor. And just like the Feast of Purim, we should see in the Lord's Supper the sovereign hand of God at work in our circumstances. Even when the world is shrouded in darkness, even when our situation appears hopeless, even when God seems, appears absent, he has taught us to trust him and to keep on hoping. And I get the feeling that in all our world has faced over the past few years, hope and longing are very hard to come by. They're very low. <laughs> I know those two things take effort and vulnerability. And that is why we need to know that he is with us. We need to know that he is on our side we need to know that he is guiding the narrative, that he is caring for every single one of us, that he is protecting us and fighting our battles and in the end, prospering us. Perhaps we can speak about it just a little bit more personally. We are never quite as in control as we would like to pretend. Much of the time we're anxious for a good reason, because we can't control everything. We can't control our lives. We can't control other people. But for those who trust in the God of Esther, that's okay. It's okay to not be in control and not in some way like, it's okay to not be in control right now. Later you'll be back in control and then that'll be okay. <laughs> No, we're never in control. And that's okay. Because God alone is sovereign over the poor, over the lots that are cast. Above all, that's what we learn from the book of Esther. God is invisible, inaudible. God is nowhere to be found, and yet he is front and center the whole time. The book of Esther teaches us to take to take Job's words on our own lips. Listen to this from him, Job 23. Behold, I go forward, but he, but God is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. 
but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Thinking in this moment about how often throughout scripture, God refines and tests his people. Whatever darkness you're facing, whatever darkness in the world, maybe it's the darkness of your workplace, your home, your relationships, your friendships, your marriage, or darkness in your own heart or in your own mind. You have come to the kingdom for such a time as this to trust the sovereign hand of God, the one who is always at work and to be a light to those around you. In a world of darkness, Jesus offers Purim. In a world of darkness, Jesus offers Purim. Psalm 23, if you remember, he has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He anoints your head with oil and your cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In a world of darkness, Jesus offers Purim. A feast of gladness, hospitality, remembrance, and care for the poor. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you Lord, for a feast of gladness, Lord, of joy, of remembrance, of care for the poor. We thank you for your word in Esther that has so much, Lord, not only to teach us in what we know, but to teach us in what we do. Or to teach us to trust you when things are dark, when things are bleak, when, or when our hearts betray us, when our minds turn on us, when, or when people turn on us, or when things are completely out of our control. We just... In those moments where we feel out of control, we just realized how much we didn't have when we thought we did. But Lord, we know that nothing is slipping through your fingers. Your eye doesn't miss anything. Your ear doesn't miss anything. There is nothing that you haven't thought of. <sighs> Father, help us. Help us to be a kind of people Lord, who, who long to remember, who hope to remember, Lord, who hope to come and share with you a feast of gladness and hospitality and joy. Lord, we need that. We need to be fed at your table and we need to invite others to be fed at your table. Lord, help us, please. Help us. We need you and we love you. And we ask all of these things in your name. Amen.